This is the Plant Yourself Podcast. I'm Howard Jacobson of PlantYourself.com, the Big Change Program with Josh Lajani, and WellStartHealth.com. This podcast is part of my mission to help you live a meditative and marvelous life. I first heard about today's guest, Emily Fletcher, from my friend Gio, who told me that she was one of his favorite meditation teachers. Now, I've been struggling with meditation for decades, trying things, finding things, getting excited about different meditations and programs, and always kind of falling off. I would do it for a week or a month or three months or four months, but after a while, somehow my life would get busy and there just seemed to be better uses of the time. And I knew that wasn't the case. I knew that meditation had benefits, but I guess... I just hadn't marketed them to myself in a way that was convincing. And what I love about Emily's work with her company Ziva Meditation and Ziva Mind is that not only is she a great teacher of meditation, but a great marketer of meditation. And that marketing has rubbed off on me. So when I wake up in the morning, I hear her voice telling me why I should meditate, what benefits it's going to bring me, not just in 20 years, not just transcendentally, not just for world peace, but for myself today to give me more energy, more focus, more clarity to help me become a higher performer. And maybe that's shallow and maybe I should be more concerned with sort of world peace and, and ultimate knowing. But... That's where I am. I wake up and I kind of want to know, well, what's in it for me today? When Emily shares the benefits of meditation in her public talks and YouTube videos, she talks about stress reduction, peace, happiness, but she also talks about sex. She also talks about meditation being a, a brain gym for high performers and all the stuff that we want. We recorded the conversation not just with audio, but with Skype video. So if you go to plantyourself.com slash 254, you can not only listen, but see our facial expressions and watch our mouths move. One more thing before we get to the interview. Emily has generously offered a discount to her Ziva Online meditation training, and I have taken the training. It's a 15-day program. I really loved it. It has made it so easy for me to meditate in the morning and then again in the afternoon. And it really feels qualitatively different from other times where meditation practice kind of slacked off after a while. So she's offered a discount to plantyourself.com listeners. And the discount code is plant, P-L-A-N-T. And if you go to plantyourself.com slash 254 and look at the links, you'll find a link to go sign up. And by the way, I don't get any money whether you sign up or not. So this is just me recommending and supporting and encouraging you to meditate with, with what I think is one of the best programs out there. Oh, one, one more thing before we get to Emily. One of the reasons I love her program is because it trains you to be self-sufficient. I was using the Headspace app, which I like a lot, and I found that my iPhone itself was keeping me from being reflective and present and meditative a lot of the time. It was just a, a screen suck for me, and I was getting addicted to it. So the last thing I wanted was to have to rely on my phone for meditation. And Emily's program really trains you to be able to meditate anywhere. You don't need bells, you don't need incense, you don't need special chairs, you don't need 
apps. It's just you and your mind sitting quietly and following her instructions. All right. So without further ado, Emily Fletcher, welcome to the Plant Yourself podcast. Well, thank you for having me. I'm ready to plant myself down and chat to you. Awesome. So uh, you are a, a meditation teacher, a meditation evangelist. Um, one of the things I noticed about listening to you and your talks is that you are like really high energy. And it not, not, you know, I can tend to think of meditation and meditation teachers as being sort of very chill. And, you know, you tap dance during your talks and you make... I do a lot of high kicks, a lot of splits. <laughs> yeah, and you're, you know, you're really out there. And so um, I guess my, my first question is, um, you know, how, how did you come to sort of meditation and mindfulness and this whole thing? Were you always sort of into that or was it, did it you know, sort of fill... Uh, or compensate or, you know, fill a need that you maybe uh, felt before you got into it? Hmm. Uh, Well, no, I've not always been into meditation. I grew up in Tallahassee, Florida, about seven minutes from the Georgia line. I grew up doing keg stands of Nat Light in the Walmart parking lot. I was, you know, Florida's junior miss in 1997. I sang the national anthem at the super Walmart opening. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I don't want to brag. I don't want to intimidate you. Uh, But, (laughs) uh, but no, my life, I I mean, I always knew even when I was a little girl, like I knew I'd be an actress. I knew I'd be on Broadway, but I also knew there would be a phase two. I knew there would be an act two. And when I think about my earliest memories of what I wanted to be when I grew up, uh, I would see myself on stage, like motivating people, specifically women. I saw myself speaking to women, And I didn't know what I'd be talking about or really who I'd be helping, but that's the sort of image I had for myself, even as a very, very young child. Um, But I didn't actually find meditation until I was 26 or 27, uh, and I was doing my last Broadway show, which was a chorus line. I was on Broadway for 10 years before I started teaching meditation, and I think that's why I tend to gravitate towards high performers. That's why we really like working with high performers is because I, you know, I was one, I worked with one, I... You know, when you are on Broadway, your voice and your body and your emotions literally are your instrument. And so you have to be in pretty peak performance shape all the time, even if you're sick, even if you're sad, even if you're tired. You have to figure out tools to be able to perform at the top of your game. And I had a lot of those tools, but the reality was after a decade of doing that, and, and my job was, my last job was to be the understudy, which means like you could be thrown on for any character at a moment's notice. So you're in this constant state of fight or flight, you're in constant anxiety. And over time, that really takes a toll on the body, that chronic inflammation that happens from adrenaline and cortisol. Um, it can lead to insomnia, which it did for me. I didn't sleep for 18 months. I started going gray at 26, started getting sick and injured. So I'm like living my dream on Broadway, but I was miserable. And then I found meditation and it cured my insomnia on the first day. Uh, I, I mean, I literally slept through the night for the first time in 18 months after my first class. And then I've slept through the night every night since that was 10 years ago. And if that's the only thing that meditation had done for me, it would have been worth it. But then I stopped going gray. I stopped getting sick. I stopped getting injured. I started enjoying my job again. My relationships got better. My relationship with food got better. My relationship with my body got better. And so I just thought to myself, why does everybody not do this? So (laughs) I left Broadway. I went to And I started what became a three-year training process to teach. And then I opened up Ziva in 2011. 
think I graduated in December of 2010, and then I started Ziva in January of 2011. And it's been the best thing I've ever done. I've taught over 7,000 people to meditate. We started one of the world's first online meditation trainings, which I'm really proud of. And we have a thriving community in New York, LA, and online. And people ask me if I miss performing. And as you sort of gave away from my videos, the answer is no, I'm still performing. Yeah. I'm still doing my high kicks. I'm still tap dancing. I'm just being a ding dong. But, but now I'm performing and it's my words. And now I feel like I get to be more directly a vessel for nature to use me to deliver fulfillment. I feel like I get to use my lifetime of performance training, but now more directly to help other people. And selfishly, I love waking up to emails from people saying, you know, my insomnia is gone. My IBS is gone. I got a raise. I stopped dating that ding dong head. I, my skin is better. I got a scholarship. I quit that job, you know. So I just like hearing people's reports of how using this tool to get rid of stress in their body helps them to perform at the top of their game. Mm, it's like a uh, sort of ongoing standing ovation. Ha! Yes. I mean, selfishly, sure. Like, if it's really tempting to want to think that like, oh, I'm the reason that their life is changing, but it has nothing to do with me. It's the practice. And it's the sure. fact that they actually are committing to the practice, but still it feels nice. It feels nice to be a part of that journey. Mm -hmm. So I've got to ask, because when I was in high school, I was not uh, into theater, but I was um, in the orchestra. So we always got to see the theater people in, in you know, very unflattering light, like, you know, the first six weeks of rehearsal. Um, and there was a lot of, especially among like the, you know, the stars, the ones who were going to go on to, you know, careers, there was a lot of stress. There was a lot of competitiveness. Um, there was a lot of, you know, concern over body and body image. Um, and I'm, you know, I'm wondering if, if, if that had been part of your story as well. Mm -hmm. A thousand percent it was. I like to call myself the most competitive meditation teacher in the land, just because I think it's funny, like the idea of a competitive meditation teacher, I think it's hilarious, uh, but I sort of am one. But, I, but to me, competition is great. It's like I use other people's success to help motivate my success. And I, the more successful I am, the more people are stressing less and accomplishing more. So like to me, it's a win-win. Now, admittedly, competition can eat you alive inside and it can be a destructive force, but I feel like I've managed to to transform it into a creative force, but, but that was not always the way. So I was definitely very competitive. I was definitely very stressed. And to your point, my relationship with my body was not good. I, I looked like I was 30 since I was about 11. Like I just went from like child to matron and I sort of skipped like my teens really physically. I went from five foot to five, nine in one, one year. Wow. And most of that over one summer. And so I basically looked like an adult at 11 years old. And I was just like five foot nine, 110, 115 pound, like model. Like I looked like a model. And so I got whisked off to New York to be with a modeling agency and to be in New York city at like 14, 15 years old, you know, I knew I wanted to live here already. Like I knew I would be a New Yorker, but I wasn't ready yet. But the thing at 14 is that you think you are like, you uh -huh. think, you know, everything you think you're an adult, you think you're so smart. Um, but then I got sent home from modeling agency because I was too fat and I was five, nine, I was 114 pounds, which is skinny. And they sent me home cause I was too fat. And I remember getting home 
And then my boyfriend at the time was supposed to pick me up at the airport because my mom and dad were both working and he couldn't pick me up because he was like hanging out with some other girl. So I'm like, I'm just sitting alone in the Tallahassee airport having been rejected from what I thought, like I thought I was going to be the next Cindy Crawford. And then I'm just like alone in the Tallahassee Municipal Airport at 14, like crying and thinking that I'm like overweight. So it was like a real blow to the ego. And I'm sure that it didn't do me any favors in the confidence department. Um, And so I'm just very aware of, you know, even then I was like, well, I'm fine. I'll just brush it off. But I think that that did definitely imprint in how I saw my body from then on out. And when you're a dancer, the reality is you're wearing tights and leotard and you're looking at a mirror all day and, and your body again is your instrument. And if you are weak or if you're have weight somewhere or that you don't have somewhere else, like it just impacts the way your body moves. And because you're in a room largely with other tall, thin, beautiful women, it's very hard to not like compare yourself. Mm. And especially when you're being paid to be beautiful. Like literally my job was to be professionally beautiful. I was wearing like headdresses and sparkly tights and leotards and, and it was all fun. I liked it all, but it definitely, I was hypercritical of my body and everything I ate became like a, a checklist. You know, it was, oh, I've been good today so I can reward myself with this, or I've been Mm -hmm. bad today so I have to punish myself with this. And everything, every single bite of food I ate, I was thinking about how it was going to impact my body, my weight, my skin, my appearance. I never, like I literally, not until maybe I was 31 or two years old, do I think I ever had a meal as an adult where I wasn't concerned about what that meal was going to do to my body. And I I 100% attribute meditation to changing my relationship with food. And the tricky thing is, is that I don't ever remember it changing. Like, Mm. I don't ever remember that self-criticism, that constant tallying, that like punishment and reward system that I had like conjured up in my brain. I don't remember that falling away. I just remember like one day I was like, wait, I haven't even really thought about what I was eating in like a year. (laughs) And I was actually like in better shape and felt better and liked my body more when I wasn't constantly tallying everything. Hmm. Well, you know, so my experience with, with meditation, which has been sort of, you know, very much the homeowners, you know, the householders, um, you know, 15 minutes, 20 minutes, not, you know, day long or week long or, you know, month long, dark meditation, anything, anything like that. I've never been to India. Um, But one of the things that I grapple with as I sit there is, the voice inside my head that is ultra critical of, of me, of the way I'm sitting, of I'm doing it wrong, of the thoughts I'm having. And I'm wondering, you know, where you're 14, 13, 14 years old, you're being treated kind of as a woman and you're being judged on your looks and you're being rejected on for, for being overweight. And I'm sure, you know, there you must have tons of stories of like, men looking at you in ways that were not, would not be appropriate to look at a 13 or 14 year old girl. And, and just, you know, it must like the gap between feeling okay with yourself in yourself and the world that you had entered of, I am going to be judged by other people. Like it seems like there's a, just a, a, a huge gap. And I'm, I'm imagining that meditation was a, a useful tool for you to sort of reclaim your own, opinion of yourself? Hmm. Yeah, I do think that 
what meditation gives you is the ability to be self-referral for your happiness instead of object referral for your happiness because it's basically the only tool I've ever found that allows you to access your bliss and fulfillment in the only place that it resides, which is inside of you. And that's sort of what's happening on an esoteric level. But what's happening on a neurochemical level is that within 30 to 45 seconds of practicing what we teach at Ziva, your brain and body flood with dopamine and serotonin, which are bliss chemicals. And so you're literally flooding your brain and body with bliss, which makes you feel fulfilled, like actually fulfilled. And then you get to use your job, your looks, your sex, your dating, your food, anything that you're doing is an outlet for fulfillment instead of a place that you need to go to fill yourself up. And, and that's not an insignificant shift. And, and for me, I was very much using acting and performing as a way to get validated, as a way to sort of fill this uh, like void of honestly like self-esteem where it was like, oh, well, if people like me and people applaud for me and I get hired and I get awards and I get an agent and I get on Broadway, it was like very much ego-driven of um, like validating myself and proving to myself. But even... Even in work endeavors, that's an addiction. Anytime you're looking for your happiness outside of you, that's an addiction. And so, and, and paradoxically, the best performers are the ones that have nothing to gain from the audience. They're mm -hmm. there as a vessel. They are there to deliver. They are there for, for creativity to use them and to just serve the audience, to serve the story in whatever way it needs to be served. But the second you put an a broken or needy um, or ego-driven actor on the stage, the audience feels it, right? And I saw that shift happen for myself because Chorus Line Broadway was the worst job I've ever had. Like, not only was I, like, sucking at my job, like, I understudied three of the lead roles, and one of them I was terrible at, and I went on all the time for her. She called out halfway through the show all the time, and I was miscast. I couldn't sing it. And I didn't have the stamina to do it. And so I was just, I mean, you're just which, on Which stage. role was that? I was Val. It was a tits and ass role. Okay. And like Val's supposed to be this like spunky, young, like 20-something blonde, innocent girl where it's supposed to be like shocking when she says the F word. And she like, she was like ugly and no one would hire her. And then she got fake boobs and suddenly her career took off. And like me at like 5'9", like looking like a whatever, like a former model, like it was confusing for the audience. We're like, what are you talking about? You got a boob job and then people hired you. Like it just didn't make any sense. Uh -huh. And I couldn't sing it. And I didn't have the stamina. And it was just awful. Like it was just so embarrassing to be on stage sucking and knowing that you're sucking. And then it would create that void gets bigger. Then you're like, like me, need me. And like the worse you feel about yourself, the, the more needy you are with the audience and the less they like you. And so it, it wasn't until like I, I left the Broadway cast and I had four days off before I started rehearsals for the tour. I originated Sheila in the first national tour of A Chorus Line, and that's in the four days that I had off is actually when I learned to meditate. And so I was able to see like how needy I was in Chorus Line Broadway and how insecure I was versus learning to meditate and then playing this role. And playing Sheila in the tour was the best job I've ever had until Ziva. It was just a delight. And I felt like finally, after my whole career, I was able to see myself as a vessel. I was able to be of service to the story. I was able to support my other cast members. I was able to let creativity use me as a vessel. And it was amazing. And I got amazing reviews and the audience loved it. It was super funny. But I, it, it, that only happened because I was detached. Right. So isn't that ironic that we only get what we want when we stop really needing to want it? Yes, totally.
Um, so, you know, one thing that just came to me was, you know, Shakespeare's line, all the world's a stage. So, so we, I think we can um, generalize about, you know, from, from being an actor on the stage to being an actor in the world, needing, like, I, I can feel myself waking up in the morning and, like, you know, I've got this cord, like, it's, maybe it's coming from my umbilical cord, and I'm looking for places to plug it in to get, like, unconditional love from, you know, strangers, from family members, from friends, and I can feel all the manipulations that I go through in order to get this stuff, which feels like, you know, I'm starving and I, and, and I need food. I'll do, I'll do or say anything to get it. Um, what, are, what are your thoughts on sort of generalizing from your experience as an actor looking for applause and all of us doing that, like all of our waking hours? Yeah, well, so it speaks very much to this concept that I call the I'll be happy when syndrome that most of us are eyeball deep in. You know, I'll be happy when my boyfriend loves me more. I'll be happy when I have a million dollars. I'll be happy when I lose 10 pounds. I'll be happy when I have a kid. I'll be happy when this kid gets the F out of my house. You know, like we just, any, like whatever's next, right? We just think whatever's coming next will be what makes us happy. It's that carrot that never really comes. And, and I think that a lot of people live their whole lives like that. And they just think what's next, what's next, what's next, what's next. And then they die. And it makes me sad because a lot of people never have the tools or never have access to techniques that will help to plug them into their own fulfillment internally. So it goes very much back to that concept that I was talking about where I feel like meditation transitions you from being need looking to be fulfilled and it turns you into fulfillment looking for need because you're literally flooding your own brain and body with dopamine and serotonin you realize that your happiness lives internally, that what you seek is in you. And then you start to approach situations from a place of what can I give versus what can I get? And then the paradoxical thing that happens there is that all that stuff that you want starts to show up by accident. Now it's not an accident. It's a return on investment. It's a return on you getting your buns to the chair every day, twice a day. Um, but that takes a little bit of time. Mm. So you say you had in your your first day your insomnia was cured. In four days, you were able to completely transform your relationship with with your career. What the heck did you do, and what happened in those four days? <laughs> so, I mean, I, I won't say that the transformation with my career happened in four days. Like it took a little bit of time, and there were a few other factors there as well. Like I went from understudying, which is the hardest job ever to originating the best role in the show that I was very well suited for. So there were like a couple other factors, but ultimately that like neediness, that's the thing that was big, but that took, it took more than four days, but the training itself was four days. It's, it's actually, um, and what we do at Ziva now is just two hours a day for four days. And, and that's designed, like when I say the word meditation, what most people think of right now in the West is some version of mindfulness or a guided visualization or breath work or what you do at the end of yoga class or what's on an app and all that stuff is great. And I'm so glad that it exists. But most of that is what I would call mindfulness. And mindfulness is basically the art of bringing your awareness into the present moment. And we could practice mindfulness right now. Like I could have everyone say, all right, take a breath and bring your awareness to the bottoms of your feet. And just feel your feet on the ground, feel your feet in your socks or your shoes. Just really bringing your attention right here, right now to the bottoms of your feet. 
And something as simple as that, taking a breath and bringing your awareness into your body, that's mindfulness. It's the art of bringing your awareness into the present moment where you're directing your focus. Now, what I teach at Ziva, which is similar to what I learned originally, we've sort of adapted it for high performers, but it's a meditation training, um, which is all about giving the body deep rest and actually teaching your body how to surrender and how to let go. And, and the training is designed to make you self-sufficient, meaning that on day one, you get the key to the car, and then day two through four, you get the driving instructions. Mm-hmm. And by the time that's over, you have the key and the driving instructions, and you can drive your car, and you know when and where and how to drive it. So it's not like an addiction model. So it wasn't necessarily like what I was doing in that time. It was the fact that I got trained in a very powerful and transformative tool. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I just used it. Gotcha. Now you, you said you'd, you'd spent time studying in India. Mm-hmm. So what's, what's there for us? Because I know in the West we can idealize and romanticize India but there's also, as you said, there's apps, there's centers, there's teachers, there's books. What did you find in India that, that you, you know, you, you didn't get here or couldn't have gotten here? Or, you know, there's, where there's, there's something, there's some sort of DNA there mm. that, uh, that we, we, we benefit from, from going back to the source. Well, I think that's exactly it, is that it is the source of a lot of the meditation and Ayurvedic and yoga tools that we use in the West today. Now that's not to say that all of them are, that's not to say that these tools are exclusively found in India. Like almost every indigenous culture on every continent of the planet had some sort of a technique of de-excitation. If you look at the Incans, the Mayans, the indigenous populations of Australia, um, like Hawaiian shamanism, Native American traditions, like there are lots of different tools and techniques to shift consciousness and things you can, and people who are like walking on the bottom of the ocean for seven to 10 minutes at a time. So like there's lots of things you can do to transform your brain and body that we just sort of have forgotten in our modern quote unquote civilized society. But I think that a lot of the techniques from India have preserved so well because India was just protected geographically. In the top, they had the Himalayas, and on the bottom, they had the two oceans. And so until like ships and airplanes and technology were invented to where we could traverse the oceans and the mountains, this stuff stayed pretty pure. So mm-hmm. for 6,000 years, these techniques were passed down from teacher to student um, in a pretty unbroken lineage. And so I think that's why so many of the techniques we use today are coming from India. It's just because they didn't get um, killed out when we like eviscerated the original populations. Um, and also the Indians were smart because when, when they did start getting invaded, they sent all the knowledge like up into the um, mountains, into the caves with the monastics because they were reclusive by nature. And so even if like the invaders came and killed out a whole town, there would still be a few recluses in the caves that still had the knowledge. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that's part of of why so many of these techniques do come from India and not Australia or Hawaii or Native American cultures. So that's that. For me personally, I went to India to deepen my own personal practice. When I originally went, I didn't think I was going to become a teacher, but it was there where I was sort of rendered choiceless and my body just knew. I was like, oh, I'm going to teach this. And there was this fascinating moment where I had joined a group meditation in LA because LA was our second city on the tour uh, for Chorus Line. 
And I was just looking, I just wanted to learn as much as I could. I wanted to meet as many teachers as I could. So I, I called this guy and I was like, Hey, do you have any group meditations this week? And he's like, sure. Come on over Wednesday at six. And so I show up Wednesday at six and it's just him and his girlfriend. And I was like, well, this is not the group meditation that I was really interested <laughs> in. And so I like sit there with like one eye open with my purse in my lap meditating. And then afterwards we open our eyes and I see this photo on the ground and it's this beautiful bridge and there's a light at the end of this bridge. And, and I couldn't really tell if it was a photo or a painting, but it was just stunning. And I couldn't stop looking at it. And I finally looked at him and I said, what is that? And he goes, that's Rishikesh. And I was like, what's a Rishikesh? And he said, that's the city in Northern India. We take this retreat there every, you know, every year Are you coming. And I was like, no. And I looked at it again and I said, when is it? <laughs> I said, February. And I looked at it and I said, yeah, I'm going to go. And so cut to six months later, the first leg of the Chorus Line tour is over. I'm about to turn 30 and I am in Rishikesh and we're going to meditate on the Ganges at sunrise and we're crossing this bridge. And as we cross the bridge, the sun is rising on the other side of the bridge and I see this light and it's the exact same photo, the exact same shot with this light at the end of the bridge and I stop and I start sobbing, crying, because I know that the me in that moment went back to the me in Los Angeles and said, you have to come here. You have to teach this. Uh -huh. And every time I tell that story, I get goosebumps uh, because it's just such a beautiful example of like time sort of bending over on itself and following charm, as I would say, or listening to your intuition. Um, but it was in India that I basically decided that I wanted to teach. But when you're there, like people have been meditating there for thousands of years. And so literally the trees like vibrate. Um, it's, it's, it's fascinating actually, because you think that your meditations would be so much more profound when you're there or so much deeper, but it's the opposite because you're basically in this sort of meditative state all the time, just because of the charge that is there. When you go to meditate, it doesn't feel all that different. Like you're, you're sort of like halfway to meditation, just walking around eating ice cream. And then when you sit down to meditate, it doesn't feel like this big transition. Um, so I would say that if India feels charming and if people are like, I just wonder, or I just feel called that I would say, you know, go. And I would say, you know, Rishikesh is a cool place to go. It's been a little McYoga-fied. Um, like it's definitely, there's been a big Western invasion in Rishikesh cause that's where the Beatles were. That's where the Beatles ashram is, but there's other towns. There's a town nearby called Haridwar. And then there's also Varanasi and Varanasi is, um, the city where oftentimes people will go to, to burn their bodies. It's like a big funeral pyre place. Mm -hmm. And so there's this constant creation and destruction happening there and bodies being carried down on these streets and big fires of burning bodies and then the Ganges. And it's just, it's just fascinating. And, um, Varanasi is one of the oldest cities on the planet. It hasn't ever been like taken by war or natural disaster. So it really feels like you're in a living ancient city. Wow. So one, one, one part of that story that really struck me um, is the, the part where you got goosebumps about your, your six months later self returning to give your then self, you know, a directive. And I think about that a lot because I work with people who are undergoing life transformations, who are trying to you know, lose 100, 200 pounds, reverse their disease, become happy. And I've, I've seen and worked with enough people over enough time to, you know, I'll, I'll talk to someone and say, gosh, can you imagine if you could talk to yourself then? Or, and then people that I'm working with try to have them in that, whoops, try to have them imagine, you know, what will your future self say, your two year from now self say, Try to visualize that, but it's a very it's a very messy process, and it can be very sort of intellectualized. 
And it feels like that's not what it was for you. Can you talk a little bit about like what the meditative practice enabled in terms of sort of, you know, time traveling messages? Mm-hmm. I mean, to be honest, I had nothing to do with that moment. Like that happened to me. That was just divine. And I got out of the way. Right. Well, um, that's the thing. On, Cause people, yeah. you know, I'm sure that could happen to all of us all the time, but we don't get out of the way. Mm-hmm. So I'm curious, like what, what was getting out of the way? What did it feel like? Or what, it, how can we, well, I think, how can I get some of that? Yeah. So I think what got out of the way was my preconceived notion of what I thought my life was supposed to look like right? Because I was going to win a Tony and then I moved to LA to pursue like TV and film. And then, and then this whole meditation thing happened and I was just constantly being open to life showing up in these new and exciting ways, which I never would have been had I not been meditating. I would have continued on the trajectory of like, I have to win a Tony and then I have to win an Oscar and then I have to get, you know, another Broadway show. And I would have been on that rat hole like come hell or high water, whether I liked it or not, whether I was fulfilled or not, whether I was contributing or not, because I would have been under the illusion that my happiness lied on the other side of some accomplishment. But I think what the meditation allowed me to do was A, to be able to hear that intuition and then B, like not be so rigidly attached to my preconceived notion of what I thought my life was supposed to be. Um, So that's one piece of it. But I agree with you and the the people that you're working with and that once you do have a meditation practice, you can absolutely cultivate and utilize that sort of time bending phenomenon that happens. Because when you meditate, and and I can't speak for every style of meditation, but what we do at Ziva, you're accessing a, a verifiable fourth state of consciousness, which is different than waking, sleeping, or dreaming. And in that, you sort of move beyond the left brain and into the right And when you move beyond the left brain, you move beyond the realm of thinking, which means you move beyond the realm of time. And so if you move beyond the realm of time, then it makes it sort of irrelevant how long you're like dancing around in that state of consciousness, but it also changes your relationship with time in your waking state. And so people who've been chronically late their whole lives suddenly feel like they're ahead of schedule or people who have felt like, oh, I just, I need to get married and have kids before I'm 30. Like suddenly that like imaginary pressure lifts. That's one application of it. But the other application of it is that you can use the few minutes right after meditation where you've just sort of de-excited the nervous system and accessed source energy and moved beyond your left brain. You can use that time to go back and communicate with an earlier version of you, right? Like Because in, in our left brain, time exists very horizontally. Past, present, and future are all happening separately. But there's another version of time where time happens vertically, where it's still past, present, and future, but they're all happening at the same time. Mm -hmm. And we could think about that right now. Like we could, we're right now, you and I are talking to each other right now, but we could think about the very beginning of this podcast when you were asking me about when I started my meditation career and being on Broadway. And then we can also think to when we're going to end this podcast, or I could probably have everyone think about, you know, their first kiss and then they could... uh, speculate about when or how they think they're going to die. And we can hold that past and that future inside of this present moment. And so there are different states of consciousness where we can more easily access different sort of times or versions of ourselves. And so oftentimes I'll encourage my students to, in the few minutes after meditation, go back and sort of comfort or visit or communicate to an earlier version of themselves. Maybe it's them when they were five and their parents were getting a divorce or then when they were 14, when they were being sent home because they were too fat to be a model or like whatever the thing is that, that felt like it 
that you could have used some support mm. and whatever feels charming. You want to hold their hand. You want to give them a hug. You want to tell them that it all works out just fine. Uh, I just think it's a beautiful practice to get into. Now we can't change the events of our past. The past is the, the film has been shot. But to me, when you do this, you're not trying to change your past. What you're doing is that you're editing things in post-production, right? The film's been shot, but you're now in the editing booth and you're putting on a filter. You're putting on more light. You're changing the soundtrack. You're and so and as you do that, I mean, you everyone has watched a scary movie with no with the sound off. It's not scary. Mm-hmm. You know, you put like lovely, romantic, funny music under a horror film. Suddenly, <laughs> it's a comedy. And so there are things we can do in post-production even after the film of our life has been shot, that changes the way that we interpret our previous events. But that very much depends on what state of consciousness we're in right now. Because if we don't like who and where we are right now, then we're looking for things to blame in our past. If we love and accept who we are right now, then we can bless and praise everything from our past because it is what created us and what shaped us to get to where we are. Mm, That's really beautiful. So one of the things I'm experiencing in this podcast is I keep forgetting my next question, which I don't write them down, but I usually have like a thought of where I'm going. But like um, there's there's something about the way you're grounding what you're saying that I need, I sort of need a few seconds to uh, take your time. To, <laughs> so I, I just, I just wanted to reflect that like I'm, I'm noticing that. Um, so so what, what I mean, you know, you're talking about sort of the you know your future self time bending, which sounds very sort of you know, science fiction or woo woo, but I know you're, you're really science based and, and sort of, I I love the, uh, you know, the collaboration in your mind and in your work between sort of spirituality and science. Can you talk a little bit about, you know, when you started thinking about creating Ziva, like how you were going to be different from other meditation teachers or businesses or practices and did, did sort of the science spiritual, um, tension or handshake play a role in in how you conceived it? Well, the only thing that I've been very intentional about with Ziva is the fact that we are very much meditation for high performance. You know, that we want to work with high performers. We want to give people tools to perform at the top of their game. And I'm not super attached to even what those tools are. Like if I find something that's better than meditation, I'll start teaching that. Um, And I'm, I'm just sort of a secret nerd and I just really like understanding the brain. And I feel like if I'm going to dedicate my life to teaching a tool that's very much impacting and changing the brain and impacting your neuroplasticity and neurogenesis and the size of your corpus callosum, like, like this practice has been proven to change all of that stuff. I figured, well, I better go ahead and and understand it. And I think that one of my gifts as a teacher is the ability to communicate not only esoteric spiritual concepts in a way that is, uh, relevant and accessible, but also the ability to communicate some of the headier neuroscience concepts in a way that feels relevant. And so I don't know how much of that was intentional or if it's just like, you got to shake what your mama gave you, you know, it's just like you use the tools that you've been given and then you make the best with that, you know? Um, so I think it's, and it's also just what you're drawn to. You know, I like having fun. I don't think the meditation has to be so serious. I like neuroscience. I like performing. I like working with successful people that are shaping the consciousness of the planet. And so it's, it's um, a combination platter of what are my unique gifts and then how can I use those gifts to best be of service? Mm, that's beautiful. 
So now I know you know you've given talks at Google, which are which are mm-hmm. on the web. And I'm imagining at at Google, there's a lot of skeptics. There's a lot of people who are really into the science and you know prove it to me. Um, so you know, as as you you seek out this market of high performers, is there sort of a a marketing mind that that you apply to just bring them in until they can experience it for themselves? Like the kind of, you know, they're all their their spoken and unspoken objections. Yeah, that talk at Google was interesting because I had only been teaching for a very short amount of time. And if you watch the talk, like I'm really nervous in the beginning. Like there's so many comments were like, I can't believe this woman's even a meditation teacher. She seems so nervous. And like, I was nervous. <laughs> I was like convinced that this thing was going to make or break my whole career. Like, I mean, I really was in the I'll be happy when because <laughs> it's like Google, you know, and I had only been teaching for like five seconds. And um, so it felt really make or break, which is not true. Um, but I have to say that once I kind of calmed down that group of people, that was one of the most receptive, kind, open, hungry, genuine audiences I've ever spoken to. And they had warned me, they're like, look, people might not show, they might be eating their lunch. They might be on their phones. They might be on their laptops. So like, don't let it throw you. Don't be offended. You know, this is like a lunch and learn. They're going to come in, they're going to leave early. And none of that happened. People weren't on their phones. They weren't on their laptops. They weren't eating. They didn't leave early. The room was packed. And I think it just speaks to like the popularity. I mean, the the fact that people came into the room speaks to the popularity of meditation. The fact that they were stayed with me speaks to, I think, my lifetime as a performer and also the validity of this technique. Um, Now, I think because I liked working with high performers, I naturally do draw skeptics. And I'd say I specialize in skeptics. I mean, I live in New York. I teach in New York. You know what I mean? It's like they're the most skeptical, but if you can win them over, if you can get them convinced of the science, then they're the most committed because New Yorkers need it like medicine. (laughs) Meditation's not like fun for them. It's effing medicine because this town costs you a lot to live in, you know? And so it's a way for people to sort of fill up their own reservoirs in a city that costs you so much. Uh, But as far as like the marketing goes, um, you know, I mean, at this point, like Ziva is a brand and I'm proud of that brand. And a lot of people get really like bent out of shape. They're like, you know, how dare you like market meditation or make a company around it or charge money for it. And, and I just, I mean, I've been around and around and around with this, with so many people. And to me, a business just means you provide a service and you receive compensation for that. And even back in the day, thousands of years ago, if you were like a monk or if you were wanting to learn this stuff, there would still be an exchange of energy. Like you would go and you'd have to apprentice someone for five years before they even decided if you were worthy of learning the technique. <laughs> and the reality is like no one's doing that anymore, you know? And so the energetic exchange that happens is, is money. And, and, and we also do like work studies and we offer scholarships to cops and veterans and kids. And so I, I feel like the marketing piece I've been criticized for being like too salesy and too markety, but one of the people that I really respect uh, in this space is Marie Forleo. Mm -hmm. And she has really reframed marketing for me. And it's like, look, the world needs that thing that only you can bring. And marketing is simply letting people know what that thing is. And I'm genuinely passionate about this tool. Like I actually believe in my heart of hearts that meditation has the potential to eradicate unnecessary suffering from the entire planet. 
And that's not me selling. That's actually what I believe. And that's actually why I do what I do. And I think sometimes people confuse like the strength of my mission and passion and the fact that I have a business, they, they confuse it with like whatever, whatever the, the criticisms are. But I think that marketing is just letting people know what you have to offer. Do you, do you get uh, blowback from like meditation purists around like the goals? Like if you're saying like meditation is for high performance or meditation is as one of your talks for mind blowing sex or for peace of mind that people would say, no, it's really for like dissolving your ego so that none of this should matter. Mm. Like, you know, that, that, that thing. I get a little, a little bit of blowback around that. And I think that comes from two, two phenomenon. One is that a lot of the meditation styles that we've been introduced to in the West are monastic in nature. And so people are thinking, well, if you're meditating, you should live like a monk, meaning that you shouldn't care about a house. You shouldn't care about a car. You shouldn't care about money. But the reality is it's only 1% of the world's population that is monastic by nature. The rest of us are, as you said, householders. The rest of us like do want to have sex and mate with people and have kids and send them to college and live in houses and drive cars. And that stuff takes money, right? So unless you're actually a monk, like living out of a satchel and like, you know, hitchhiking and crashing on people's couches then then think that there needs to be like a lubricating force. Um, so the, the blowback I get, though, is not so much about how I sell the benefits. I get the blowback around having an online course. Um, really? Because Ziva, our, our online course was, was actually like the first online meditation training. It was before Headspace. It was before Oprah Chopra. And, and so we got a lot of flack for that. Um, and then, but my view on like, as far as like selling the better sex, better parking karma, the performance thing. It's like, honestly, all I'm doing is wrapping the medicine with some candy coating. And I don't actually care why people take the medicine. If you come to meditation because you want less cellulite, well, guess what? You're still going to be less of a dick. And so like, even if you're coming to meditation because you want to be rich, you're still going to be more altruistic. You're still going to be kinder if you actually do it. So I feel like what I'm doing at Ziva is meeting people where they are. I'm, I'm, and because the reality is meditation can make you more money. It will make your sex better. It will make your parking karma better. And then the trick is that once you start doing that, you realize that that stuff is a byproduct of that internal bliss and fulfillment. So you become less attached to it, which to your point that you made earlier, you were like, why is it that the second you don't want it, all the stuff comes. And so meditation is providing that detachment, which paradoxically is the thing that allows all those things to show up. Right. So at a certain point, our brains have to like do a 360 or a loop-de-loop around that, that sort of paradox of desire. Like, you know, I want it so bad, but then I don't, so I'm pretending I don't want it, but then I really don't want it, you know? Yeah. I mean, you can definitely trick yourself for a while. Like that's what I used to do with acting. I was like, I wanted, you know, I would like just set my goals higher and higher and higher. So I was really detached about a few clicks below and I think that's how I was on Broadway for 10 years because I didn't really care about being on Broadway. I just wanted to be doing bigger and better things. Mm-hmm. And so there's a way to trick that detachment, but ultimately that's not sustainable. You have to actually cultivate that detachment. But I don't think that comes from doing a 360 intellectually. I think that comes from having a tool that actually is giving you access to your fulfillment inside. Mm-hmm. So um, let's let's talk about you know, my, my people, the people who I work with and who listen to the podcast, 
one of the things that constantly comes up is that they have goals, values, ideals. The people who listen to this podcast tend to be very passionate about wanting to make themselves better and wanting to make the world a better place. And yet there's this knowing doing gap, this wanting doing gap where, you know, they can't stop binging or they wake up in the morning, hit snooze nine times instead of going for their run. So I do a lot of work with mindfulness around. So, you know, feeling the feeling as it occurs, turning, you know, interpreting it as sensations in the body rather than these, you know, desires and, and all the mental chatter. What is the kind of meditation that you teach? What does that have to, to offer us if we want to live according to our values, priorities, and goals? Mm-hmm. Such a good question. And I have two big concepts to communicate here. One is the difference between software and hardware. Um, software would be like an operating system. Hardware would be like the computer itself. And software would be any self-help book you've ever read, this podcast, uh, any lecture, any sermon, um, even, you know, religion, self-help books, like these are all operating systems. And most of us have plenty read too much software. You know, we're living in the information age. And, you know, one person says be vegan. One person says eat grass-fed meat. One person says eat dairy. One person says don't eat dairy. One person says exercise. The other person says don't exercise. Meditate. Don't meditate. Clear your mind. Don't clear your mind. And so there's so much information out there, oftentimes conflicting, that that stuff can sometimes stress us out. And if you're trying to download very, very advanced software on a stressed out PC old computer from 1995, then there's a disconnect. And that's what most of us are doing. We've got, we've watched the Ted talks. We've read the books. We've read the Wikipedia pages. We've gone down the YouTube rabbit holes. We have educated ourselves. Our intellect knows what we are supposed to do. If I were to give every single person listening to this $10,000 and a plane ticket to Tahiti and say, write a book on how you should live your life. Everyone could do it. (laughs) Sleep, exercise, eat vegetables, call your mom more often. It's not that hard. It's literally not that hard. And none of us are doing it because we don't act in accordance with what we know. We act in accordance with the baseline level of stress in our nervous systems. So when the human body is stressed, you launch involuntarily into a fight or flight stress reaction. And when you are in that state of consciousness, your 300 million year old meat suit is doing everything it can to stay alive. And this is a quote from my friend Dave Asprey. He says, when you're in fight or flight, your meat suit is basically going to try to fight, feed, or the other F word, everything it can find, right? It's doing anything it can to procreate, to keep alive, to um, keep the species evolving. And that includes eating as much fat, as much sugar, as much salt as it can, having as much sex as it can, and fighting any opponents threatening its survival. But here's the trick. Our demands are no longer predatory attacks and food is no longer scarce. We've made it very easy to be alive on the planet Earth. Now, it doesn't feel easy because we've got like, you know, Fox News and CNN and stuff. So that stuff is stressing us out. But that's a different story. We can talk about that later. But to actually just survive as a human being is ridiculously easy now as compared to what it was even 200 years ago. You don't have to hunt your food. You don't have to fight your predators. You're not like scared that animals are going to eat your baby. 
So this fight or flight stress thing has become maladaptive. And yet we haven't out evolved this like eat as much fat and sugar as I possibly can. So if you're stressed out and you're in fight or flight and there's a whole sleeve of Oreos in front of you, like good luck trying to negotiate your way out of not eating the Oreos. Because all this, all the reptilian part of the brain understands is pain and pleasure. You eat the Oreos, you get pleasure. That's like an immediate reward. You drink the wine, you get pleasure. That's an immediate reward. You sleep with someone you shouldn't sleep with. That's an immediate reward. You yell at your mother-in-law because she's pissing you off. It's an immediate reward. It's an immediate release. And so what we have to do is put preemptively tools into place to get us out of that fight or flight and get us into what I call stay and play to move us out of the sympathetic and into the parasympathetic so that we have a fighting chance of using the executive function of our brain. That's the prefrontal cortex, the executive function, which is the thing that gives you the ability to choose whether or not you want to eat that Oreo, whether or not you want to drink that third glass of wine, whether or not you want to sleep with that person that maybe you shouldn't sleep with. And so it's really a question of not getting more information, but rather eradicating the lifetime of stresses that we've all been accumulating in our nervous system so that we have access to the full brain power and executive functioning that we were gifted as humans. So when you say that there's a lifetime of stress accumulating in our nervous system, okay. so I, I tend to think of it as you're either, you know, it's a, it's a very momentary thing. Like now I'm stressed, now I'm relaxed. You know, I get up on stage and the curtain opens and I have to do my solo. I'm, I'm, I'm stressed and maybe it's good stress. And then I, you know, then the show's over and I can sit back in the, in the, uh, you know, in, in my dressing room and, and crack open a beer. I'm relaxed. But you're saying that like there's, there's imprints. It's like a, uh, that the stress that happened five years ago didn't really go away. That's correct. So you can think about every single time you've ever been stressed, every time you've ever gone into a fight or flight stress reaction, like it's left a little open window on your brain machine, right? And so let's say you're at work, you're typing an email and you're like, okay, maybe I'll take a break. And you open up Facebook and then YouTube and Twitter and Hulu and Instagram and Vine and uh, you know all, all the windows. And let's just say you could open 10 million of those. And they're like, huh, maybe I should get back to work. And then you go to type that email and your cursor is about 20 spaces behind. And you're like, oh, stupid computer. Can't even type an email. I'm so distracted. I'm so anxious. I'm so depressed. It's like, well, this computer is infinitely capable of typing that email, but not when it's using all of its computing and battery life to run all these open, irrelevant windows. And th those are called PCCs or precognitive commitments. And by the time we're 20 years old, the average American has about 10 million of those in our brain machine. And so what meditation is doing is that it's going in and it's maximizing all of those windows so that you can click X and get rid of it. Um, and it would be so great if we could just sweep it away, but that's not how nature works. Things have to get highlighted for deletion. And so that's why when most people start Ziva, there's actually a period of like emotional and physical detox that happens. And that's really confusing for people because no one talks about it because it's a terrible sales pitch. Yeah. Um, because like who wants to be like tired and tired and sad and angry when they start a meditation practice. But the reality is your body's a perfect accountant. So every Dr. Pepper, every Taco Bell, every breakup, every all nighter, and every time you've been in fight or flight, that stuff gets lodged in your cellular memory. And it's impacting not only your mitochondrial health, which is the energy center of your cells, it's actually impacting 
your DNA, your actual genetic code. Gosh, I'm just going through all my all-nighters. and I know. Look, I live my life in my 20s. <laughs> yeah. so, so when you say, I mean, I love the metaphor of you actually have to, um, you know, highlight for deletion. You have to kind of look at it. You're, you're, not, you're not trying to circumvent or shortcut or just, you know, click the, the empty trash button. You've actually got to, you know, pay for everything. Um, do you worry that, that people are going to open things that they're not equipped to open? Sometimes. Um, that's why when I made the online course, I, I made it intentionally gentler than what I teach in person because I, could, I had no way of knowing if people were going to finish. I couldn't be in the room with them. I don't know if people are dealing with PTSD or depression or anxiety. And so I made it by design, gentler than what I teach in person, because that unstressing, that uh, detox can be very intense. And, you know, mine has, I've been through intense periods of it and I've helped over 7,000 people through it. And so it doesn't scare me anymore. And that's really when my job becomes a job. Um, and, and there are some people that are not equipped to deal with it. And a lot of people I recommend that they get support and that they have a therapist and that they're using other healing modalities to really create a catharsis and to, to move the energy up and out. I mean, that's, it's quite rare. Like most people are like, they cry for a couple of weeks and they need to take some naps and they're a little irritable. And that's like a, you know, people are willing to pay that price for the rest of their life of bliss and fulfillment. But occasionally, especially if people have dealt with like, you know, combat, like PTSD from combat, um, or if they're like, if there's been like violent rape or if they've been sex trafficked, you know, like there are things that can be very intense as it comes up and out. And I'm not a doctor, I'm not a therapist, and I'm not pretending to be. And so I'm pretty quick to say like when, when I need to bring on help and when they need to bring on help. But I guess the corollary of that is given support, the, the meditation that you teach is actually curative or healing for these things that Western society doesn't know how to deal with. Yeah, there's been some cool new research coming out saying that the combination of these sort of like self-induced transcendence styles of meditation, that combined with EMDR, you know, that um, the light therapy, that this can be a really, really powerful combo for dealing with PTSD around both combat and sex trafficking or sexual trauma. Wow, that'd be great. If I, if I could uh, bother you later for a link to uh, the study, I'll put that in the show notes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So before I let you I go, should, I do want to preface that I've never done EMDR, so I can't speak to it personally. But I've just, I've, I know people that have had great success with it. Great, thanks. Before before I let you go, I just want to uh, talk briefly. You know, speaking of marketing, um, your talk on mind blowing sex. I thought that was just it was so interesting and so funny and 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 yet to totally respectful of of what sexuality is and can be and should be. Could you kind of give us the, the cliff note version of, of why if we, if we want to have good sex, we should meditate? Sure. Um, well, thank you for saying that, by the way, I appreciate it. The funny thing about that talk is that I wasn't supposed to give it. Like I was only scheduled to give one talk at that festival and then someone canceled and they're like, do you want to do another one? And I was like, okay. And so I sort of like got on stage and was winging it a little bit. Um, but I had already written an article on that subject. So I'd done the research around it. But basically, if you think about it, if your body is stressed, uh, and this is going to sound a little antithetical to what I was just saying, so I'll clarify in a second. But if your body is stressed, if you're really like in fight or flight, and you're like deal worried about like immediate survival, um, 
then like the last thing your body's interested in is like procreation, right? It's like, if you think you're literally about to be killed by a tiger, you're not like, oh, let me go get pregnant right now um, or impregnate someone. And so when you're stressed, like acute stress, your, your sex drive goes to the back burner. So that's one way that stress can impact your sex. The other way is that um, it's something like 80% of cohabitating um, American couples say that the number one reason why they're not having as much sex as they want is that they're tired. Mm-hmm. And so this type of meditation that I teach at Ziva, you're giving your body rest that's about five times deeper than sleep. So a 20-minute meditation is equivalent to about an hour and a half nap. And so if you take an hour and a half nap at five o'clock at night, then you have this whole hit of energy and productivity and creativity for the rest of your day, for your partner, right? Instead of you just coming home and passing out on the couch with a glass of red wine in your hand. Um, the other thing that's interesting is that, you know, the classic cliche around sex and and like not doing it, it's like, not tonight, honey, I have a headache, right? <laughs> and so this is where I think you were talking about the migraines and masturbation. And so um, we have about a 90% success rate with migraines at Ziva if they are stress-related and if you continue meditating. And so if that's one of the reasons why you're not having sex is that you have migraines, well, you know, meditation could potentially take that off the table. And then the thing I threw in was if meditation doesn't work, then if you do feel like you're getting a migraine, if you masturbate at the very early signs of it, Sometimes that will help it to go away because when you orgasm, the vascular system in your brain dilates and oftentimes the migraines are happening because of constriction in the vascular system in the brain. Um, And then the other thing which is a little esoteric or a little hippy-dippy is this concept of mirror neurons. And the way I like to describe mirror neurons is that if my brain has boomerangs and your brain has boomerangs and they come out and they dance with each other and then they report back. Right. It's mirror neurons are actually the reason why porn is a multi-billion dollar industry. It's, it's the ability for us to receive pleasure from watching else, from watching someone else have pleasure. It's also the thing that allows us to experience pain by watching someone else have pain. So as your friend, your best friend walks into a room and you can tell she's just in a bad mood versus she walks into the room, you can just tell she's in a good mood. That's, that's mirror neurons. There's also some visual cues as well, but a lot of that is happening energetically. And so my hypothesis here is that as you start meditating, as you're increasing neural activity in general, your mirror neural activity also increases. And so your ability to sort of like intuit what your lover's into, it's like your lover is going to think that you're psychic because you're sort of going to know what they want before they want it. And also the more that you see them getting pleasure, the more pleasure it gives you. And so it becomes this generous upward spiral instead of like, what have you done for me lately? Or like, let's get this over with, or even sex becoming an I'll be happy when syndrome and just sort of racing to the finish line. Mm. <clears throat> so sort of like when you're, uh, you're talking to the microphone and you're placed, you know, the monitor is placed badly and it's just, it's that, you know, feedback to yeah. this like huge, like if you're, if you're getting pleasure from your partner's pleasure and they're getting pleasure from your pleasure, then. Yeah. It's this upward spiral. The, and that's, the speaker analogy is actually a really good one with the mirror neurons, because if you have uh, like two speakers, I think like if, if they're placed in the right position, then it's not twice as powerful for the audience. It becomes exponentially powerful. And, sa- and same with three speakers. It's not three times more powerful. It's to the third degree more powerful. And so I think that there's an interesting corollary that could happen energetically as you are giving and then they're giving and each person is getting pleasure from seeing the other person pleasure. It becomes an upward spiral versus a, a spiral of take and need. Right. 
Right. I'm, I'm not sure whether you just um, you know gave scientific rationale for threesomes, but uh... <laughs> I hope so. <laughs> um, so yeah, I've got to let you go. Um, but for, for like, tell us about Ziva and where people can find it, and and yeah. who should uh, who should explore. So you can check us out. Everything that we have, you can find at Ziva Z I V A Ziva, which is a Sanskrit word that means bliss. So zivameditation.com. And we have hundreds of videos and articles and podcasts on there for free if you want in the Ziva Vault. We also have an online training. Um, the one we have right now is going away in February of 2018. So I'm not sure exactly when this will air. But our online training as it exists now is going away February 10th of 2018. And then we're launching a brand new one called Ziva Online, which I'm really proud of. Uh, it's been five years in the making. It's been, there's better neuroscience, better videos, better technology. It's sort of a micro learning platform. And we just tested it with a group of people and they were loving it. Uh, and I know that because we had like zero customer service. Everyone was just like, I love it. <laughs> um, so that launches in February as well. So anyway, if people want to learn online, that's the options. And then we also teach in New York and sometimes L.A., uh, but all that information is at zivameditation.com. And as far as who should try it, I would say, you know, high performers. And, and by high performers, I mean anyone who wants to be better every day. If you want your brain to be in better shape, if you want to be in better health, if you want to enjoy your life more, if you want better sleep, you know, any, if you feel like stress is keeping you from being the most amazing version of you, then why would you not utilize the most powerful stress relieving tool that we have? Mm -hmm. And, and I, and I also think that, you know, if by now, if they've listened to this whole podcast, and they haven't turned it off yet, then it's possible that I might resonate with them as a teacher. Now, some people probably only made through five minutes of like, this girl is crazy, you know, and I'm not their teacher. Uh, but I always think that we find the person that resonates with us um, in the time that is meant. Right. So the objection I'm hearing in the back of my head from people is like, well, that sounds great. But I've never been able to meditate. I don't, I don't have the time. What kind of time commitment are we talking about ongoing after the training? Mm -hmm. So, well, the training itself, so Ziva Online, which is our new one, it's about 15 to 20 minutes a day for 15 days. And I made it 15 days on purpose so that you really have some momentum going by the time you finish. And then once you graduate, the practice itself is 15 minutes twice a day. Um, but here's what people are actually saying. When they say, I don't have time to meditate, what they're actually communicating is, I don't know how to meditate. Because if you know how to meditate, the return on your time investment is exponential. You start needing less sleep. Your to-do list used to take you five hours starts to take you three. Your creativity increases. Your productivity increases. And you can't imagine not meditating because stress makes you stupid. So... If you know how to meditate and you have a tool that's designed for you, then this I don't have time thing becomes totally irrelevant. It's just that most people, because meditation is simple, they think they should already know how to do it. And so, but the reality is meditation is like any other skill. And once you have a tool that for you and a bit of training and you become self-sufficient in it, then it becomes ridiculously easy and enjoyable. And you see that it actually gives you more time. Also, like, so far, I've taught Oscar, Grammy, Tony, and Emmy award winners to meditate. I've taught doctors. I've taught whole heads of hospitals, so hedge got, fund you've managers. Got your, you've got your EGOT. Yeah. Well, not. I need my – I still need – I do have an EGOT. I'm looking for a, a, a PGOT now. I want to pull a surprise winner. <laughs> <laughs> That's how I get competitive now. <laughs> what about Nobel? Yeah. Is that a thing? PGOT? 
<laughs> yeah, let's go for all of them. <laughs> and a president. I want to teach. A, 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 yeah, I would like to teach our president to meditate. <laughs> and yeah, yeah and, hurry. Okay, okay. <laughs> uh, but yeah, so. Uh, Oh, the other thing I'll just say really quickly, this is like the longest podcast in the history of podcasts, um, is that a lot of people think, again, that they don't have time to meditate because they, they feel like they're failing when they do it mm. because they think that they should be clearing their mind. And so, and I can't believe I haven't said this yet, but the number one most common misconception around meditation is that people think that the point is to clear the mind. There's like this one dude going around telling everybody that in order to meditate, we have to clear our minds and I got to find him and I got to teach him how to meditate because he's robbing everyone of a lifetime of bliss and fulfillment. And so, um, the reality is, I don't know if I lost you. Oh, can you hear me? But the reality is that the mind thinks involuntarily, just like the heart beats involuntarily. So trying to give your brain a command to stop being is as powerful as trying to give your heart a command to stop being. It doesn't work. Mm. Right. That's that's really powerful. Because you know, because I think I, I heard you say that in one of the talks, and just it just felt so liberating. It is the most liberating. Because otherwise you're just sitting there being like, I suck, I suck, I'm having thoughts, this sucks. And then you quit. Because who wants to do anything for very long that you feel like you're failing at? Right, so true. So yeah. it's at zivameditation.com. If someone can't wait for February, for the, the second one, is there, do you have a deal where if they sign up now, they can get the other one? Mm-hmm. I don't want people to wait till February. The world is, the world is too funky. Yes, we need it now. So yes, we just discounted it today. I can't, I don't want to quote a price because I don't actually remember. And they're literally putting it up on the website today, but there is a big discount on our old training because it's only available for another nine weeks. And then also we're going to, if you do this training, then you get like $200 off the new training when it comes out. Like we, we take really good care of our folks and um, we want people, we want to support people as much as we can. Oh, and Howard, I also wanted to offer your listeners, if they do feel inspired to join Ziva Mind, which is our online training that we have now, or Ziva Online when it comes out in February 2018, if they want to use the code PLANT, just, you know, like short for plant yourself, then they will get a significant discount off of either of those trainings. So they can just type in the word PLANT, uh, all caps, PLANT, and that'll give them a special rate. Awesome. Thank you. I may take you up on that myself. Oh, good. My pleasure. And the other thing I wanted to say is that I love you. Know, you met, you taught Ziva is like Sanskrit for bliss, mm-hmm. and it also in Hebrew means radiance and light and, uh, and kindness. Our, yeah, our our daughter's middle name is Zivan. For, really, for, for that very purpose. So when I saw Ziva medica- meditation, I'm like, oh, we got something to talk about here. Oh, I love that. Thank you so much for sharing that. That's beautiful. Yeah. So so I mean, I and I love I love that we were able to do this with video, so that you know. We, people could see because there's a there's a quality of a sort of joyfulness and playfulness and dare I say bliss and radiance just in in you know the way you just I moved my microphone from the left to the right side this is the second time I've almost <laughs> knocked it over um, while I was complimenting you just oh, you know, thank the, you so I, I I hope that people will will check it out and if they you know they, if they feel a connection that they, they you know I'm, I'm definitely gonna going to check it out. You've sold me that I need to up my game. Um, well, it would be an honor to have you. And as soon as our new one is ready, I'll let you have a little sneak peek in it. And then you can share it with your folks, what your ooh, experience is. Ooh, fantastic. 
So, Emily Fletcher, thank you so much for, for your generosity of time and wisdom and spirit and for, for joining us today. It is my absolute pleasure. Thank you for the work that you're doing in the world. And thank you to everyone for listening. It was super fun. All right. Be well. Bye. If you enjoyed this episode of the Plant Yourself podcast, please subscribe and leave a review on iTunes. For more information about the Big Change Program, led by me and Josh Lajani, visit BigChangeProgram.com. And be sure to check out the show notes for today's episode with links to everything we talked about at PlantYourself.com slash 254. If you're new to the show, you can catch up on 253 archived episodes over at PlantYourself.com, where you can also sign up for the Big Change Bulldog, my weekly-ish newsletter. No garden news this week that I'm aware of. I'm out of town in New Orleans, hanging around with Josh, brought my kids, and we're enjoying Mardi Gras together, hopefully. I'm, t- I'm uh, recording this before we went down, so uh, here's hoping. In running news, uh, I'm hoping that I'm over my injury. I'm sure being with Josh down there is going to help. Uh, we'll, we'll do a bunch of runs together. And it's time for thanks. Thanks to Will Ridenauer for allowing me to use Sabali Don, The Dance of Peace, as the theme music for this show. Check out more of his music at willridenauer.com. And of course, thanks to all you Plant Yourself podcast patrons. Before I say the names, I just want to let you know that sometimes when I can't sleep at night, I will go over the names in my head just like I'm counting sheep. Like... Kim Harrison, Lynn McClellan, Anthony Disson, Brittany Porter, Dominic Marrow, Barbara Whitney, Tammy Black, Amy Good, Amanda Hatherley, Mary Jane Wheeler, Ellen Kennelly, Melissa Cobb, Rachel Behrens, Christine Nielsen, Tina Scharf, Tina Ahern, Jen Vilkanovsky, David Bizek, The Mysterious, Michelle X, Elspeth Feldman, Victoria Dolomanova, Leah Stoller, Alan Christensen, Colleen Peck, Michelle Andrew, Josina, Julianne Rollins, Stu Dolnick, Sarah Durkis, Rhymes with Circus, Kelly Cameron, Wayne Pedersen, Leanne Peterson, Janet Selby, Claire Adams, Tom Franzek, Jeanette Benham, Jeanette Benham, Gila Lassert. David Donahue, Blair Cyber, Dorona Vizov, Gio and Carolyn Argentati, Jody Friesner, Ruth Ann Thunderberg, Misha Rosen, Michael Warabeck, the equally mysterious Tracy Z, Alicia Lemus, Rebecca Hughes, Val Lineman, Rhymes with Cinnamon, Nick Harper, Stephanie Holmes, Martha Bergner, Nicole Ramsey, Susan Ahmad, Molly Levine, the inscrutable Harry R., Susan Laverty, the Panda Vegan, Craig Goldick, Adam Sharp, Karen Burry, Heather Morgan, Ashley Corcoran, Kelly Machia, Deanne Norton, Bonnie Lynch of Plant Happy Oregon. Sabine Kurtzholz, Nigel Davies, Marion Blum, Teresa Coble, Shell Rutledge, Julian Watkins, Breed O'Connell, Brian Sheridan, Sharon Hirschman, Kate Rolls, Linda Ayat, Julie Langholm, Hedegaard, Isa Tuzinwak, Connie Hainline, Erin Greer, Alicia Davis, Aviva Lael, Heather O'Connor, and Carolyn Jensen, Sherry Olakoski of Plant Powered for Health, Karen Smith, Scott Mirani, Karen and Joe Crabtree, Tanya Lewis, Kirby Burton, and Teresa Carell for your generous support of the podcast. It feels good to say I'm slow and to really give them uh, the honor that they deserve. That's it for this week. As always, be well, my